Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 74, the book of Matthew, chapter 22, the second continuation. When we follow Yeshua's career on earth, and especially his wisdom teachings, we find that just as in the manner of our teachers, that like they taught us in elementary and high school and college, over time, Yeshua built up knowledge in his followers by starting with the simple principles and then moving them to the more challenging. Now, from the straightforward, we're going to go to other matters that aren't so black and white, yes or no, do or don't. And Matthew chapter 22 stretches us to the point of discomfort with the more nuanced. And it only gets tougher as we soon begin chapter 23. In fact, these chapters have caused major heartburn within institutional Christianity especially from the late 3rd century onward, as much for what Jesus doesn't say as for what he does. Now, we hear of Christ talking about resurrection. He never gives a definition of it, let alone any details about it. He leaves whatever it is or whatever it looks like sort of hanging in the air. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 23, says that the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, but goes no further to help us understand what that even meant to them or to the Jews in general, except to use the topic in yet another effort to test Yeshua, adding in another arcane topic, levirate marriage, a law of Moses. They want to know if in a family of seven sons, if the oldest marries but dies before his wife produces him a son as an heir, and then in obedience to the law of Moses, the second oldest brother marries the widow, but no son is produced before he dies, and so on and so on through the seventh of the brothers. Then in the resurrection, which of the seven brothers will be the husband of this woman? Christ responds that in the resurrection there will be no, no marrying. Again, other than for this tantalizing tidbit, we learn nothing more about the resurrection other than that the Jewish process of a couple getting married no longer occurs. Nor do we learn what the status of an already married and living couple is at the time of the resurrection of the dead. See, then the issue of angels is brought up. And other than saying that the reason there will be no marrying is because the angels don't marry, we learn no more about angels, although the amount of Christian doctrine about angels is enormous. Neither Jesus nor the Bible tells us much of anything about them. Next, Yeshua says that God the Father is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this in reference 
to the resurrection in general and the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in specific. Christianity has never had a consensus on the interpretation and application of this statement. But now we get into yet another strong statement by Yeshua that is alternately ignored and misstated other times. It's just twisted and applied wrongly by various of the church denominations and branches. Well, that section of chapter 22 begins at verse 33. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to start reading at verse 33 and go to the end. 22, 33, going to the end. When the crowds heard how he taught, they were astounded. But when the Parushim, Pharisees, learned that he had silenced the Sadducim, the Sadducees, they got together. And one of them, who was a Torah expert, asked a she'elah, a question, to trap him. Rabbi, which of the meats vote the commandments in the Torah is the most important? And he told them, you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And this is the greatest and most important mitzvah. And a second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Torah and the prophets are dependent upon these two commandments. And then turning to the assembled Parshim, Yeshua put a she'elah to them. Tell me your view concerning the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, David's. Then how is it, he asked them, that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? When he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one could think of anything to say in reply. And from that day on, no one dared put to him another Shelah. We're told that the crowds were astounded at Jesus' response to the Sadducees. So even though he was having this debate directly with the temple leadership in the temple grounds, a lot of people called the crowds were within listening distance and they were paying attention. Now this meant that how all this was going down and with the way Christ was able to completely disarm the Pharisees and now the Sadducees, the news of it would have spread like wildfire inside and outside of the walls of Jerusalem. That's the last thing any of this Jewish religious, religious leadership wanted, but now it was too late. And as a housekeeping matter, there was a typo in earlier published complete Jewish Bibles in verse 34 that says when the Zadukim learned that he had silenced the Zadukim, now, Sadakim, Hebrew for Sadducees, obviously the first Sadakim was an error. And it should have told us that when the Pharisees learned that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that such and such happened. Uh, and this was corrected in later volumes. Anyway, so we see how carefully 
the leadership of the temple and the, and the synagogue, usually these two groups were opposed to one another, were working in concert to defeat what was now perceived as a common threat to the entire Jewish religious establishment. So verse 35 says that after consulting one another about the matter, it was the Pharisees' turn to try and discredit Yeshua. And we're told they sent a lawyer to confront him. Now in Greek, the word is nomikos, and it means an expert in the law. Now, of course, this was speaking not about Roman law, but about Jewish religious law. And nearly certainly that meant, in this case, the law of Moses, as opposed to Jewish law, halakha, tradition, which is what the Pharisees more adhered to in the synagogue. Thus, this lawyer was a special Pharisee because of his knowledge in an area that the Pharisee leadership was lacking, the Scriptures. Thus, whereas some Bible translations say lawyer, that word's misleading for Western Christians. Rather, a better translation would be an expert in the Torah. So this Torah expert puts forth a challenging question for Jesus to answer. Which of all the mitzvot, the, the commandments, the many rules and laws of Moses, is the most important? Now to butter him up a little bit. The law expert begins by calling him in Greek, didaskalos, which means teacher. Now, in modern times, we have millions of school teachers, so the title doesn't quite carry a lot of weight. In Jewish and most other first century cultures, it did. Teachers usually had flocks of disciples. They were revered, admired. They were held up as experts in various fields. In the New Testament, teacher almost exclusively means a teacher in the Word of God, or at least of religious matters. The complete Jewish Bible says Jesus was here called rabbi. This is doubtful because unlike what so many think, rabbi doesn't mean teacher, it means master or it means great one or something like that. And the question is one that almost every child that has attended Sunday school knows or at least has heard. What is the greatest commandment of God that rises above all the others? And Christ's answer is, according to the complete Jewish Bible, you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. There is a second part to this that we'll get to momentarily. Now, the King James Version says it in a way that is more known to the broader world of institutional Christianity. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Now, I have two things to say about this. First of all, the Greek word that the complete Jewish Bible translates as Adonai, and that virtually all other English translations I have consulted and translated as Lord, is Kurios. And it's a, it's a generic Greek word. It is not specifically religious or secular. 
It means master or lord. Lord in the sense of any person who holds status or rank. Christians have a tendency to assign one of the several titles for Jesus or for God the Father as the Lord. Yet what we must grasp is that the term is less meant a divine title and more an acknowledgement of that person's or being's status and rank. The term properly used in the Holy Scriptures is to characterize the status and the rank of kings and teachers and leaders and of aristocrats and of God. Now notice here in Matthew that when English translations use the term the Lord and in interpreting what Jesus said, it can only be applied to God the Father. Christ is certainly not indicating himself. And yet, as most any Christian as, as go, uh, most any Christian who the Lord is, and they'll just say in a generic way, God, or just as often, Jesus. Now, thus far in Matthew and in all the synoptic gospels, during the time when Jesus was still living, the Lord is only God the Father in heaven. Now, I can't begin to tell you how guilty and ashamed I still feel when I look back at my own life up until nearly the age of 40 about how I marginalized God the Father. For me, there were really only two persons in the standard Christian Trinity doctrine that had any relevance in my life, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In fact, while I cannot say that I specifically recall any pastor or minister saying out loud that God the Father was a, was a relic meant only for Jews, while Jesus was now preeminent and only for Christians, the implication of it was so thick, it was so baked in to every Sunday school lesson and every sermon that believing anything else would have been totally foreign to me. Now, when I began to study on my own and the reality was in black and white on the pages of my New Testament that Christ never held himself up as above or even equal to the Father, and he directed all glory and honor to the Father, praying to his Father. And when we read even in the book of Revelation and see that the Father plays such a leading role it amazes me how I never noticed it. Or even more, why the church has so misinterpreted this juxtapositioning of, of, of roles and hierarchy of the Father and the Son. Actually, <laughs> I do know the answer to this, and I occasionally get some nasty grams for generalizing. But the truth is that the Gentile church early on knew that to gain a separation from the Jews and to redefine the church of Jesus Christ as a Gentiles only and new religion, they had to marginalize God the Father and remake him as the old God, the one the ancient Hebrews worshipped. 
and make Jesus as the new God, the one Christ followers worshiped. And yes, not every last Christian church or every last Christian individual believes this way. But by far the bulk do. And it is something which the church leadership that teaches this way needs to repent about. And a great reformation needs to take place because this issue represents the molten core of truth, of our understanding of who God is, and even how we go about worshiping Him. Second thing I want to tell you is that there are all manner of understandings about how to translate and interpret that part of Christ's statement about how to love God the Father when it says, with all your heart, soul, and strength. Other Bible versions might say, with all your heart, soul, and mind. Still others, with all your heart, soul, and understanding. That doesn't exhaust them all. We're not going to get into a debate over the precise interpretation because it leads us in the wrong direction. What Yeshua meant by what he said is that we're to love God the Father by our entire lifestyles and with total allegiance and devotion. Those three attributes that Christ uses as to how we are to love God are meant to represent the entire person every aspect of our being, however we wish to phrase them. Now, we can't behave one way in church, another one at home, another one at our places of work. We can't set God's ethics and morals on the shelf for our business or for our leisure practices. God's laws and His ways apply to every aspect of of our lives all the time. Anytime we try to compartmentalize our behavior according to the circumstance is to compartmentalize our obedience and allegiance to God. No matter how we might wish to uh, try to rationalize such a choice. Now, especially for Christians watching or listening right now, and those who have not first gone through the TorahClass.com study of the Torah with us before attempting any New Testament teaching, what Yeshua says here is simply a quote from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is known among the Hebrews as the Shema. You sung that this morning before the start of service. Do that before every service. Verse 38 has Yeshua saying in many translations, including the complete Jewish Bible, that this is the greatest and most important commandment. Others say that this is the first and greatest commandment. Those are somewhat less than adequate translations. The King James Version has it most correct. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight, in the King James, it says, this is the first and great commandment. Did you catch the difference? See, the Greek word that is often translated in our Bibles as greatest is megas. 
it does not mean greatest. Greatest versus great indicate something a bit different if we'll just think about it for a minute. Yeshua calls the commandment in the Shema to love God as the great commandment. In fact, I think that because of the modern Western English way of thinking and speaking, great commandment probably ought to be capitalized to make it a formal title. Not merely a description as calling something the greatest does. See, greatest denotes that there are others to consider. For instance, if I say God the Father is the greatest God, it necessarily implies there are other gods, but he's the greatest among them. But if I say he's the great God, he stands alone. Yeshua is separating that commandment to love God with all of our being and make it unique. Make it the foundation for everything that follows. But, he says, there's another one like it. Now, we need to be so very clear on this, as this is a difficult but vitally important understanding that we need to try to work through. The Greek word is homoios, homoios, and it means similar. It bears a likeness. It means same as, but only to a point. It does not mean equal. It does not mean identical. There cannot be two great commandments. Or the word great loses its meaning. It certainly means there is an important relationship and similarity between the two, and together they represent the foundation of the Hebrew faith. But only one is the great command to love God. Now, it troubles me that tremendously good scholars and linguistic people will try to, to pound a word or a phrase into fitting a preconceived doctrine rather than just letting it speak for itself or acknowledging that there is more than one possibility. The two most popular explanations for the second of the two commands, the one that's similar, is that it means second numerically, one, two. Or that it means equal to, and in no way is homoios meant numerically, like second in sequence, and it does not mean the equivalent. Now, Mark's version of this story backs up my position on this. I'm going to quote to you the King James Version interpretation because some liberties were taken in the complete Jewish Bible on what was said. The King James Version says this in Mark 12, 31. And the second is like... Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none of the commandments greater than these. So says Mark, even though there is a great commandment, placing loving God uniquely alone on its own level, a similar one to it 
as loving one's neighbor. Together, they stand apart. Now, for some time now, as we have read about Yeshua's parables, where he says something on the order of, to what can the kingdom of heaven be compared? Or, the kingdom of heaven is like. He certainly doesn't mean that his illustration is a replica of, or equal to, or the same as the kingdom of heaven. He means there's an important attribute or illustration that we can use to approximate what the kingdom of heaven will be like when it's fully manifest. The statement about something that is similar to, but not equal to, the great command is, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And it is another quote from the Torah. This one from Leviticus 19.18. So what makes these commandments similar? Why are they alike? They're both about relationships. Relationships. The first command is about our relationship with God. The second command is about our relationship with other humans. The first command gives us the basis and the rules of engagement with our relationship with God. The second command gives us the basis and rules of engagement for our relationship with our fellow man. Yet, because the first command is the great command, it stands above, it preempts the second one. Our relationship with humans is important, but our relationship with God trumps our relationship with humans. A very famous and for some troubling statement that Yeshua once made embodies this concept of a definite hierarchy of our relationship with God first, human second. He said it in Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life besides, he cannot be my disciple. This is about relationships. As difficult as this statement is, I, I really think it can help ease the pain that can come from this rather cryptic passage by placing but, replacing but one word to help us better interpret its intent. We're going to replace the word me, Jesus speaking himself, with the word God. If anyone comes to God and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he can't be God's disciple. Do you see? Thus, Yeshua is speaking from his divine nature. He's speaking from that perspective as God's agent on earth, as opposed to a typical human-to-human -human relationship. If no human can come before God, then no human can come before Jesus. Now briefly, as I have previously taught on this passage, the term hate is used in the sense of not having proper loyalty. Love and hate. Those were regularly used political terms 
even in the King James Version Bible era, to love one's king was to be faithful, total faithful, in allegiance to him. To hate one's king was to not be in total faithful allegiance to him, and thus one had divided loyalties. The term hate had nothing to do with emotions such as extreme dislike. Thus, while all our loyalty is to be with God, if we are properly faithful, then we will obey His commandments. And His commandments teach us not only how to love and follow Him, but also how to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. Thus, the connection between the two commandments. Now, I've heard over and over, especially from well-intentioned men, that their first obligation is to their family. Well, among human relationships, that's how it ought to be. But to put that before our relationship with God is not proper loyalty. This is not God's command to us. He unequivocally says He is our first obligation. Obligation to our family is similar but it's not on the same level. Loving God is the great commandment. Loving our fellow man is second only to loving God. But together they form the greatest, the most important of all the commandments that covers all of our relationships. Thus, as Christ says in Luke 14, be prepared to choose your loyalties. And in this world today, if that isn't becoming apparent, I don't think you're paying attention. Your family, your fellow man, they may demand something from you that is in direct contradiction to what God commands. Your family or fellow man Say, you can't have it both ways. Not with me. Go their way or go God's way. You know what? God says the same thing. Go their way or go my way. What do we do? You align with God and let the chips fall where they may with humans, even including your family. And it may just lead to heartbreak. And I pray you're never put into this sort of dilemma. Well, verse 40 has Christ saying the intriguing words that all the Torah and the prophets are dependent upon these two mitzvot, these two commands. The King James Version says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, this passage alone destroys any notion that the Torah and the prophets are no longer for Gentile Christians. And if one says, well, he was only talking to Jews, so it doesn't apply to me, not me, a Gentile, then intellectual honesty demands that not one thing Jesus has said to this point in his ministry has anything to do with Christians. 
or the church, because everything he has taught to this point has been directed to who? To his fellow countrymen. Not even the Sermon on the Mount, then, could be applied to Christianity. In fact, those Bible scholars that do possess intellectual honesty on the matter acknowledge this unsettling reality. And that there is a large sector of them that now say, oh, there must be a divide between Yeshua's pre- and post-Easter teachings. That is, on the one side of the divide, everything that he taught prior to his death and resurrection, that was only meant for Jews. But on the other side of the divide, only what he taught after his resurrection is for the church. Otherwise, they fully understand that the foundational church principles that have been at the heart of Christianity for 17 centuries, that the law and the prophets are dead and gone, replaced by love and grace. And that God the Father is the God of the ancient Jews, but Jesus is the God of the church. That God has done with Israel and he's turned all other blessings over to the Gentile church. This all falls to pieces. I know these are strong words. And I regret that this is likely to cause some offense. But what I'm telling you is biblically true. You've seen it for yourself. These truths are not buried beneath the words of the New Testament. They're floating right there on the surface for everybody to see. So what Yeshua is saying is that to love God and to love our fellow man are the two foundational pillars upon which every following commandment and law of God is established. And upon those two pillars sit first the Ten Commandments. The first basic principles given to Moses that gives us direction on how to love God on the one hand, how to love our fellow humans on the other. And then upon those ten basic principles rest all the remaining commands that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Hebrew sages and rabbis say there's 603 more. And these are primarily ritual law, priestly rules, and case examples in the law of Moses about what it means, what it looks like, what the application is for how to obey those ten basic principles, which themselves are then based upon the two foundational pillars. See that? In the end, it really isn't all that complicated, is it? And yet, Daniel J. Harrington asks this important question in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says this, Did Jesus' summary mean that his followers could disregard the other 611 precepts, precepts of the Torah? Well, at least Matthew didn't take it that way. His claim that on these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets assumes that the whole law and prophets remain in force, at least in theory. See, although other well-known Bible scholars have said something quite similar, I chose his statement as just representative of the others because at the same moment 
He admits it is simply not deniable that Yeshua is here saying that the entire Torah remains in force for all of his followers. Mr. Harrington then muddies the waters by including the proviso that Matthew didn't take it that way. In other words, he takes the words out of Christ's mouth, something Jesus actually said, and turns them into merely Matthew's opinion on the matter. Look, either the gospel of Matthew is the inspired word of God and it's true, or it isn't. If all it is is a journal of Matthew's viewpoints and personal opinions disguised as Christ's words and his actions, it's no better than a modern self-help book. When studying the Bible, we always have to allow for a low-level miscopying, misspelling, the occasional later Christian gloss added, but that can usually be exposed by looking at the oldest of the Greek manuscripts. But those words in Matthew that Mr. Harrington throws suspicion upon fit none of that criteria, and Mr. Harrington doesn't even claim that it does. You see, his dilemma is that once again, the actual words of the Bible what Jesus said interferes with long-held Christian doctrine and dogma. So the question for him and others at times can be, how do we rid ourselves of those pesky passages that speak so plainly for themselves, but they disrupt the fine new religion that's been created? Easy. Just discredit the gospel writer as needed by at times throwing suspicion upon his motives. But when we do, we can't at the same time call the gospel itself inspired of God. We have to choose. Well, verse 41 opens up a matter that I spoke about at the introduction to today's lesson. We've entered a time when Jesus' teachings and the questions he asks are no longer simple and basic, nor are they necessarily so easily answered, even by the greatest minds, Jewish or Christian. Yeshua more or less says, okay, now, you've been putting these difficult questions before me. I got one for you. Whose son is the Messiah? And in good traditional Jewish fashion, the religious leaders answer, David's. Okay then, says Yeshua. So how is it that David says, and then Yeshua goes on to quote from Psalm 110. Now when we recognize an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it's always best to turn to the source of that quote, especially in the Hebrew Bible and not necessarily in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, because often it'll give us some needed insight. Looking at Psalm 110, the complete Jewish Bible says this, A psalm of David, Adonai says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The King James Version puts this verse this way, A psalm of David, 
the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Not much to argue about here, except that the complete Jewish Bible uses Adonai, where the King James Version and nearly all English versions use the term Lord, but wait. Here we run into another of those translation matters that when revealed, gives us some interesting info. To begin, Psalm 110 is rightly designated as a messianic psalm by both Judaism and Christianity. So it's understood that much of this psalm speaks about a future Messiah of Israel. Therefore, according to the church, we get this strange set of words, like we see in the King James Version that says, the Lord said unto my Lord. A typo? A miscopying somewhere in the distant past? Actually, the issue's easily remedied. The word that says, the word that Hebrews say is Adonai, but Christianity says his Lord is in fact Yehoveh, God's formal name that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But due to a taboo within Judaism against saying or writing God's name, the word Adonai gets substituted. But the church has no such taboo. So why insert the word Lord when the original Hebrew that's available for everybody to see clearly says, Yehovah, God the Father's formal name. Because within Christianity, the term Lord became reserved mainly for Christ. So what the opening verse actually says is, Yehovah said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If you look through your English Old Testaments, you may find as many as ten times that the name Jehovah, the English version of Yehovah, is used. Yet in the original Hebrew, it is written in the Old Testament over 6,000 times. This is not disputed, by the way. 5,990 or more of those times, the word's removed. And it's papered over with the word Lord in our Bibles in order to drive home a desired impression for Christians. It's not the best thing to do for truth seekers. Well, in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 23, uh, 22 rather, verse 43 of Matthew chapter 22, Yeshua says that when David penned those original words of Psalm 110, he was inspired by the Spirit. That is, David was writing under God's inspiration about prophetic things. There is no conceivable way that David didn't get it that what he was writing somehow involved a future time. But the topic gets deep quickly <laughs> when Yeshua asked the Pharisees to explain how is it 
that David could possibly be calling the Messiah, his son, Lord. That is, if the Messiah is truly David's son, then there is no way in the Hebrew or the any Middle Eastern culture that David could refer to his own son as my Lord. It's the father that is revered. It's the father that's held highest in the family. Even the firstborn was completely in submission to the will of his father. So Yeshua implies that it's not possible to suggest that David could have been speaking about his own son when he called him Lord. Now we must also understand that how the Pharisees replied would have been the standard answer that most any Jew would have given. And it makes sense as to why. I'm going to read you a portion from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is verses 8 through 16. Therefore say this to my servant David, that this is what Adonai Sepha'ot says. I took you from the sheep yards, from following the sheep, to make you chief over my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have destroyed all your enemies ahead of you. I am making your reputation great, like the reputations of the greatest people on earth. I will assign a place to my people Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning. And as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. And when your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood. And I will set up his rulership, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I'll punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Shaul, from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus, your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Now, here's the prophet Nathan bringing God's message to King David that his son will be established on the throne of Israel. For how long? For how long? Forever. Forever. That's a long time. Now, we know, of course, that King Solomon followed his father David, and he became a great ruler over Israel. And he built the first temple. Yet there are additional things in this passage that cannot possibly be talking about Solomon, such as his throne lasting forever. And then the forever parts repeated. So from the vantage point now of 20 centuries, after Yeshua's death and resurrection, we can understand that the forever part of it is about Yeshua, who indeed was in King David's royal lineage. But who could have understood such a thing until well after Messiah Yeshua departed this earth? It's not that the Pharisees were wrong. It's just that it only reveals half the truth. The remainder of the truth is that David's so-called son, the Messiah, is also God's son. 
Yeshua never says that, though. Never says that. He just kind of leaves everyone hanging on the thread. His implications, unmistakable. The hoped-for Messiah is far greater than what the Jewish leaders had taught the people to envision. See, their vision was of a, a normal human, but a, a warrior king Messiah like David that would come and rescue Israel from the Romans. Sure, God's hand would be in it, but not in the sense of a Messiah being divine or eternal. See, we should not indict the Jewish leaders or the lay Jews for not being able to put this incredible puzzle together. The mystery of it to those of us believers that have the benefit of hindsight is still so great that it's dumbfounding. And do not think that Yeshua is in any way making some kind of a recognizable implication that he himself is this Messiah, son of David, and also son of God. So as we close this now, this chapter of Matthew, we get ready to move now into chapter 23. None of the Jewish people or the religious leaders has yet understood the fullest gravity of who Yeshua really was, of what their Messiah was, not even his own 12 disciples. Well, we'll open chapter 23 next time.